Right. Rabbi Yochanan right. lives in a world of beauty, and 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 beauty is real. He was who you want to look at. Mm. You know, whenever he was in the room, your eye he was luminous, described as erotic. Like if mm. you want to look at it, mm. yeah, you're drawn to him. Like people, I think you could say, well, people are drawn off their eyes, and therefore, and first impressions count, yeah. and therefore you better dress up nicely. Right. Well, I would say you're drawn off to your eyes, and we have to fight that, and therefore you have to like not dress up nicely. So much of many couples. C- time is taken up on working out whether the napkins right. are going to be purple or red right of course you have a tendency to have your eye drawn to the napkins because you sort of think well if my wedding was going to be perfect the napkins should be perfect too but actually what you want to do is no 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 the essence like let's go to the essence of the thing and work out what that that is don't even th- look at the napkins don't look at the wrong thing and if you don't look at it your attention isn't drawn to it you won't spend money on it you won't talk about it I mean, I, I, you know, I, there's, there's people I can't go and have dinner with because I know we'll talk about the wrong things. Mm. Like, go spend the whole time talking about, I don't know, whether you're going to redecorate a ki- your kitchen or not. It's like, you know, I can't talk to you. I can't have that conversation with you. That was my Chavruta, my dear friend and study partner, Rabbi Joel Levy. I'm Leon Wienerdow, director of the Beit Midrash of Kolot and creator and host of Padrash. Joel and I were batting around two texts. One, a statement from the Mishnah Navot in which Rabbi Uda Nasi admonishes, don't look at the container, but rather at that which is in it. Easier said than done. And not just for us, for the rabbis as well. For in the second text, the Talmud speaks not of Rabbi Yochanan's prodigious Torah, but rather of his physical beauty. Let's just take it as a given that most of us see things, and, like it or not, our first impression of someone is of their physical appearance. Tall, fat, disfigured, light-skinned, gorgeous, crooked-nosed, short, swarthy, blonde, muscular, it's all out there for the taking. And it happens so fast, the beholding. Now what are we to do? Integrate those impressions? Set them aside? Discount them? Try not to look? Try to unsee? We have a lot of Torah to learn. Y'all stay with us. Our text for the day is one of my very favorite episodes of This American Life, entitled, Tell Me I'm Fat. It's about fat people, but really, it's about every one of us and the world that we inhabit and that we create through our glance and by the values that we fashion and convey regarding external appearance, sometimes explicitly, usually in a more subtle fashion. It's about what we look at, what we look away from, what we name, and what we prefer not to talk about, because admitting that looks matter to us makes us feel superficial. This American Life producer, Elna Baker, tells her own story of enormous weight loss. A year out of college, I took stock of my life. It was not going as planned. I was unemployed, and I'd never been in a relationship. I'd tried for the life I wanted, hard. I got a scholarship to NYU. I was a huge flirt with lots of guy friends, but it felt like there was an invisible force blocking me from achieving my dreams. Sure, I'd think. Is it because I'm fat? 
but then I'd think, don't be paranoid. I refused to believe that people were that shallow. It had to be more complicated. I tried to put my finger on it, but I just couldn't figure it out. Once I lost weight, I realized it was all because I was fat. Hers is a tale of a before and after of stark contrast. But instead of experiencing relief, the new Elna is haunted, even tormented, at having given in to a world that feasts its eyes upon the body. Of course, I'd lost the weight to fix two specific problems. I wanted to get a job and find love. Old Elna looked for a job for a year and a half. New Elna was offered work a month after she hit her goal weight, an entry-level position on an actual TV show. I was hired to be a page at The Letterman Show. My job was to walk down the line of people waiting to go into the theater and divide them into three groups, Dots, Generals, and CBS Twos. The Dots were the beautiful people. They got seated in the first three rows. Usually those were the only rows you saw on television. Generals were average people. They sat in the order they arrived. CBS Two was for fat people, elderly people with a visible illness, people who looked like they might be disruptive, and goths. I'd scribble CBS Two on their ticket, and that was code for seat them in the back three rows of the balcony, the nosebleed seats. I'd seen Letterman a few years earlier. I was near the front of the line and somehow ended up in the nosebleeds. I remember being confused by it. The day I was trained, I put it together. Dots, Generals, CBS2. As a longtime Letterman fan, I too am complicit in the crime, and the feeling is horrid. The attention I got from men, I wrote in my journal, I wish I could just enjoy it. Instead, it made me sad. It was the unfairness that got to me. Old Elna longed for someone like Andy and never got him. She tried so hard for everything that I now got so easily. New Elna didn't have to be a good person. I just had to be thin. It made the world seem so bleak. Like, this is the system? Really? It made me less hopeful about people. When guys came on to me, it didn't feel like it was about me. I could be anyone. Men are attracted to the new Elna, but she's left feeling an emptiness that the attraction is not to her, but to her body. This continues to haunt her in her fresh marriage, and she shares with us recordings that contain so much truth and honesty that it hurts. He and I have only been married a month. He never met old Elna. And we were talking about fat and beauty and how important beauty is for men. And it got really emotional really fast. To be that, you would never have been attracted to me before. You know that makes me really sad. (laughs) Oh my God. You mean you married someone that wouldn't have been attracted to you? You wouldn't have loved me. (laughs) You wouldn't have, you would never have talked. I mean, you would have talked. We would have been friends. But you wouldn't have um, ever dated me. Ever. That, that would I have dated Fat Elna? Uh-huh. I don't know. Probably not. Yeah. Okay. I've always said, I think the real you is the skinny you. That's stupid. <laughs> not the skinny you, but the no, real... No, that's not even true. I think the real... This argument over which is the real me, old Elna or new Elna, goes on for days. Well, then that's you. No, it's just... Here we are in a car. 
what it Mark explains that he doesn't think I became comfortable with myself until I was thin. If this isn't, no, 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 listen to me. I didn't feel like but uncomfortable if, in my body or my own skin before. It was just me. I know, but it if, wasn't like I if was, you feel it like, wasn't like me in a fat suit. <laughs> it was me. That's what I was. So I wasn't like, oh, this feels really big and uncomfortable. It just was a me as a human. I was just a human. It was me. I know, but you. What Mark doesn't understand is that my old body doesn't feel that far away. What he's rejecting is me. I could gain weight so easily. And for my part, I see how so much of love is physical attraction, especially at the beginning. It's not the story we're told. It's not the one I wanted to believe. But it's a story I can live with. There's enough in what I've shared so far to discuss for hours, but I simply cannot let go of the voice of another woman on this episode, that of Roxane Gay, who struggles with the triple whammy of being fat, being a woman, and being black. Oh, I'm mistaken for a man all the time. Literally all the time. And I'm sorry, but I have huge breasts. There's just no way that you're mistaking me for a man. It's because they see me and they see my skin and they think, well, no, she can't possibly be a woman. And so that's the number one thing that happens. And it's actually extremely annoying. And it's white people or it's black people also? Oh, no, it's white people. Black people know what I am. You said uh, being black adds another layer of bullshit to being overweight. Yes, it does. Like you're even lower on the sort of totem pole of dignity. People look right past you and they don't think that you have anything of value to offer. Like you can go into a car dealership, for example, and you're the very last person that the dealer will walk up to because they think you can't buy a car. Has that happened to you at a car dealership? Uh, Yeah, definitely. Yeah. You know, I think the thing that happens most commonly is when I'm flying, I am oftentimes standing in the priority line because I travel every week so and people will say you know this is the first class line as if I don't belong there what do you say I say I know how to read yeah just leave it at that you'd want to believe that someone as strong bright articulate and insightful as Roxanne would be able to transcend the lowliness of those twats who casually mention that she's in the priority line but it's hard to transcend the world when you're stuck in its coffers. It's sobering to realize just how the past 25 years have just been all about my body. And that's where I struggle with the fat acceptance movement. I think it's wonderful and I I think it's necessary and a necessary corrective, but not all of us have, have been able to get to that space where we don't care what other people think. I, 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 I'm not all there yet, and I'm trying, but um, you know, it's just really hard to not care what people think, especially when they're constantly telling you what they think. I'd like to welcome to Padrash Rabbi Lizzie Heideman who is the founder of Mishkan Chicago, an independent post-denominational Jewish spiritual community. 
Lizzie was born and raised on the south side of Chicago, for those who know it, and is one of the founding rabbis of the Jewish Emergent Network, which is a network of seven national pathbreaking communities reimagining Judaism for the next generation. Uh, and you are welcome to learn more about Mishkan Chicago at Mishkan, M-I-S-H-K-A-N, Chicago.org. Lizzie, it is a pleasure to have you on Padrash. Thank you very much for being here. That's an honor to be here. So let me start by asking, by inviting you just to share with us your initial reactions to This American Life's uh, Tell Me I'm Fat. The episode just contains so much pathos. Like you really feel every every person who's telling their story, telling their story from the perspective of somebody who has had to contend with knowing that the world looks at them in a different way than they experience themselves and learning that through such painful moments. But the stories we heard were, were particularly painful because it's a subject that, especially in America, I think is such a tender and uh culturally powerful subject. There are just such powerful messages coming at you all the time that fat is bad. Fat is bad because why? Fat is bad in what way? Mm. I mean, just just spend a day in America, you know? Mm. And, and I think because American marketing is so powerful in, internationally, you know, we, we've mm-hmm. actually had a pretty, and I say we, like I've designed the marketing, you know, right. but we have right, had right, right. A, no. right, um, right. a devastating effect on the psyches and self-esteem of, mm. uh, you know, I was going to say women all over the world. I don't think it's just women, but, um, right. but, but people all over the world to sort of conform to a, a slim ideal, maybe a slim, even mm-hmm. blonde ideal, a slim blonde mm-hmm. ideal with, um, right. you know, sort of whatever the right proportions of boobs to hips to waist to, you know, um, and almost nobody fits that ideal, you know? So it's damaging to everybody. Yeah. So I, I actually want to, um, I still, I still want to get back to that first point that I raised, but I want to, you, you've now raised two more points for me, which is first of all, the, we, you know, when you mentioned that we, you know, I kind of felt the same way that, that I'm somehow complicit, right? Mm. Like I, I remember when, when Elna Baker mentions, having been the, the person who seats people who are waiting in line for Letterman. Yeah. And I thought, you know, oh God, you know, I, I, I watch Letterman. I love Letterman, you know? And so that kind of makes me somehow part of the system. So in that sense, I just want to kind of affirm the way in which you use the term we, mm-hmm. and, and they, it doesn't matter whether we're, we're the ones designing it. We're all in a certain sense, unless we're really, really actively fighting against it and protesting it. And probably even if we're doing that, we're many, many times, knowingly or unknowingly part of the we that's creating that. And I, and I also want to affirm, uh, maybe this is Leon, the father of f- four daughters. I mean, I mm. also have a son, but I still, my, my oldest four are daughters. And so I very much would affirm the fact that this issue of body image and fat hits women in a way that it tends it, hit, it also hits men, but just not quite as impactful in the same way. I remember being maybe in my first year of being a rabbi living in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And I ran to the bathroom in the middle of services. And there was a six-year-old kid, six-year-old girl looking in the mirror. And she mm. looks at me and she looks in the mirror and she goes, do you think I'm fat? <sighs> and I remember thinking to myself, wow. Wow. I have got to get out of this city before I have children. Um <laughs> You know, Um, and at the time there was a show on called Hot in Cleveland. The idea was that there were these, you know, women who were sort of 
like totally, totally fine wherever it was that they lived, but they like had a stopover in Cleveland and realized that in Cleveland they were hot. Right. You know, because right. being sort of uh, in different places with, you right. know, and, and Los Angeles is sort of ground zero in terms of proximity right. to celebrity and mm. proximity actually to the place where a lot of uh, that damaging culture actually gets created and disseminated. Right. Um, and, you know, that um, that there are places you can protect yourself maybe a little bit more from it, but it is everywhere. I mean, it is the air, air we breathe in, yeah. in many cases. Yes. Uh, amen. And especially in terms of, I mean, certainly within the United States, but as you said, it's exported, it's everywhere. It's not, but I, I want to now get back to that, uh, to that first comment that I want of yours that I wanted to return to, which is I, I want to maybe, do a little bit of a fine tuning on that question of how the relationship between how the people uh, in this episode, the fat people, right? Um, Lindy and Elna uh, and Roxanne, the relationship between how they see themselves and how other people see them. Because in a lot of ways, um, what I was struck by as a listener is the tremendous extent to which they, and especially with Roxanne, um, right? Roxanne says it just outright. She says, I'm all for those people who are able to just kind of embrace the term fat and say fat is beautiful or whatever it is, but you know, I'm still struggling, right? So like there's this way in which people internalize those messages that even the ones that internally they're revolting against or that we're revolting against, right? If I, if I have brown hair and not blonde hair, or if I have, you know, breasts of this size and not of that size, if I have hips that look like that or a nose that looks like that, right? We still internalize it. And so in a certain sense, it's almost impossible not to mm. see ourselves through the way we're being seen by someone else. Yeah, and that that's like a really painful moment when that happens. You know, like when Elna describes being an adult and having job interviews and going on dates and sort of wondering to herself, like, why, why don't these work out for me? You know, it, it can't be because of my weight. Like people aren't that superficial, are they? Right. And right. the answer is yes, people right. are that superficial. Right. And right. for her to, to confront right. that after, you know, having the surgery and losing the weight yeah. and to suddenly realize that the world had opened up to her and suddenly people mm. are looking at her differently and to realize it was mm. always about that. It's like a Garden mm. of Eden sort of fall mm. moment, you know, when yes. you suddenly your eyes are opened right. and you go, oh my God, like good and evil, right. you know, like this right. is, this is the world right. and it's just heartbreaking. Yeah, it really, it really, really is. And and there's that moment, right, where she says that she thinks that the old Elna was better than the new Elna, right? That I just, mm -hmm. it, it just, it just, uh, that was so painful, right? But there's this way in which she kind of feels guilty. F that That's my sense, right? She feels guilty for having internalized um, or given into those societal norms of, of, of beauty and how she's perceived, right? She, I, I, my sense is that she's kind of, you know, there's gnawing at her conscience conscience is a sense of, oh God, I, I actually gave into this and, and almost that makes me a bad person. I, it, it's, there's, there's no way out actually. That was kind of in a certain sense, what I'm left with in, in a sad sense. Yeah. Mm. So, yeah. so, so let me ask you, Lizzie, when you start to um, think about these issues and try to frame them and integrate them and think through them uh, through Jewish lenses, what were the, what were the things that came to mind for you? Um, 
so the the first thing that came to mind was an aphorism in Pirkei Avot. It says, Rabbi Omer al tistakel bekankan Don't look at the container. Look at what's in the container. Because um, hmm. a, a new container could actually contain old wine and an old container, who knows what's in there? Maybe nothing. You know, yeah. it, might not, it might be old wine. It might be good wine, but it might be new wine, but it might be no wine. And mm. who even knows? Mm. You know, you, you can't read a book mm. by its cover, can't judge a book mm. by its cover, um, mm. which is, seems very obvious. You know, it seems really, really like almost so obvious as to not require stating, except that our eyes lie to us. Right. You know, like our no, eyes I mean, lie to us. That's, right. So he doesn't tell you, I, I mean, that's actually right. In other words, all we can do with our eyes is look at the kankan. Right. In other words, I, I, that's kind of what I think is almost ironic about what he's saying. Right. In other words, he's saying, don't look. But it's almost as if, you know, someone says, don't think about the elephant. Well, now, I mean, how am I going to right? So like it's like, don't look at the outside of uh, of the bottle or the, or, or the vessel. I but, love Amashiyashpo. Put your put your right. eye inside the bottle. What's in there? You know, right, I think that's right. the thing is, um, you know, what, what everybody, what everybody in that podcast described, but I think like what any one of us walking down the street experiences in different ways, depending on our height and our weight and our race mm -hmm. and our physical appearance is people look at us and make judgments. And this right. is, uh, Malcolm Gladwell wrote a whole book on this blink, right, you right. know, the, the phenomenon right. of thin slicing, basically taking right. within a nanosecond in information right. about what you see and reading a whole story into it that is right. often completely inaccurate. And, and right. your mind and your heart thinks that it's telling you the truth, you know, because, oh, you like your inner wisdom or something. Um, but it's actually all BS. It's just, right. it, it is all the superficial, it is the kankan, it is the container. Um, and and we're being, we're being irresponsible. If, if we're right. paying attention to a person and not looking deeply inside. Well, that's what Roxanne is saying. That's what, you know, that's what Lindy's saying. That's what Elna's saying. All of them that just like there is um, this, this container, this meat sack that we walk around in that, um, right. that lies to the world. Um, and not because of anything we've done, but just because how people read the world through our eyes and we need to be untrained. We need to be schooled, um, really right. like unschooled, unlearned. We need to unlearn right. so much of the cultural messaging that we've right. internalized. And, you know, it's it's not our fault, but once it becomes clear to us, once our eye, you know, the scales have been lifted from our eyes. So then, mm. you know, the, the challenge is not to lie. It's to, it's to tell the truth, but by looking more deeply. Mm. Which is actually really hard to do because all we can see from the outside is the right. We taste what's in, right? We we or we hear what someone has to say, but we don't look into their souls. We peer onto their, you know, into their external manifestation, right? Um, so that's that that's a challenge, but I think that it's a good challenge. Yeah, and I just also want to say, you know, we're looking at this through the lens or through the lens of the stories that were in this this American Life podcast that had to do with being fat. I feel like. Mm -hmm everything that we're talking about today could also be relevant to looking at, at race, you know, at how, yes. how the lens of race really can obscure yes. so much of what's on the inside. And, all, you know, that's, that's a whole different podcast, but I think everything that we're talking about in terms of looking more deeply and looking inside um, applies in that as well. 
Right. right. I mean, it's exactly right. In other words, really um, what I was uh, interested in exploring was not the issue of being fat per se, but the, but the, but the um, challenge that we have in being in the world and, and, ha- and seeing someone before we know them. As soon as we, as you described, uh, ineluctably uh, uh, um, behold, our eyes behold them. And, and with that moment of beholding them physically, uh, along comes a whole huge uh, uh, piece of luggage of cultural baggage of value judgments, and, and we can't separate them out. Yes. Now this, right, is, is going gonna, is gonna, to um, stand... Uh, certainly, if not in contrast, certainly in tension mm-hmm. um, with with uh, the other text that we discussed in in, in preparing our conversation, mm-hmm. which is the text um, from the Talmud Baba Metzia, which which talks about um, Rabbi Yochanan, uh, who was the greatest sage of his generation uh, in the land of Israel. Um, and, uh, so, so I'll just go ahead and mention that, that there's just a, what I think is a knockdown drag out, beautiful description of Rabbi Yochanan's beauty, his mm-hmm. physical beauty. Yeah. Well, and because, because it has this sort of aura around it, mm. you can also tell there's something even deeper than mm. physical beauty. There's some kind of aura, mm. you know, emanating off him uh, that that sort of suggests mm. wisdom or, you know, the, mm. the way that saints are sometimes pictured as having like a halo almost. Right, right, mm-hmm. right. That's beautiful. So so now, now it's interesting because um, this is a section of Talmud which really is discussing the physicality of the rabbis. Um, in a way that, that that often kind of crosses the line between, I mean, it, it gets to uh, the the. Uh, in a way that would be totally inappropriate today to talk totally, about we, rabbis. If I were to read these, <laughs> even well, though people do, to to just it would in a way that would be totally inappropriate to talk about anyway. After my first instinct, <laughs> which is like this condescending, right. prideful, right. beautiful man, you know, <laughs> um, is. Um, he he's not a man who is afraid to share himself. Hmm. He's not a person who is sort of slinking, hmm. slinking back and hmm. saying, no, no, no. I, you know, I, I have a talent. I have a gift. God has given me, you know, whatever, in this case, physical appearance. Mm-hmm. But part of what he's also trying to inspire in people is Torah learning. Hmm. You know, there's, there's actually also a skill that he has developed and burnished over the course of time. And hmm. I think, the the depth of his Torah learning, Beautiful. which is part which is part of his luster, you know, right. part of his right. radiance is right. actually that he's radiating a kind of depth of spirituality, and he wants to share that. Hmm. Uh, he he's not afraid to share that. It reminds me of the Marion Williamson quote, you know, like you, people think they're supposed to sort of shrink back and not be great and not be fabulous and right. not be brilliant right. because you know I, I should let other people be brilliant right. and fabulous and talented. No, she says. Right. Who are you not to be? All of the things that mm. God made you mm. and and most of the gifts that God gave all of us are inside of us. Right. You know, they're not right on the service. Nobody knows. You know, as Roxanne Gay is standing in the line at the airport, these people don't know that she is, you know, like an award winning, winning, award winning, brilliant, Mm -hmm. insightful, deep, powerful Mm -hmm. writer, right? you know, and speaker, right? orator, thinker, they, they have no idea. And so it's actually up to Roxanne Hmm. to put herself into the world. 
and to share herself with the world. Hmm. And, and like, of course it is on each one of us to go, to go looking, you know, for what is the beauty and the wisdom and the talent in each person we see, but also it's up to each one of us to bring forth our God-given Selim, our image. So, so actually if I could, um, so if I were to go back to what you were saying just a second ago, I think that what I hear you saying, um, is that, Rabbi Yochanan had this, he, he was, he was blessed with a physical appearance, which was exactly what his society valued um, in terms of physical beauty. Uh, And he was also blessed um, with, uh, with, with spiritual depth and learning Uh, and, and what he did, which is not condemnable, but actually laudable is that he brought all of his goodness uh, he, 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 he played, he, he played the game fully. He was, he was using all of the hand that he was dealt in every aspect. Right. Um, I mean, I, I'm reminded of, I think it's a statement of Rabbi Israel of Salant, the, the, the head of the Musa movement who said that, that, um, you know, that, that being huge, that humility, being humble is not a function of putting yourself down. It's a function of being in exactly the right proportions, that's right. <laughs> that is to say, yeah. that is to say, if someone is 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 a great scholar and 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 never opens his mouth or her mouth because she doesn't want to take to take up too much space, then and and as a result of that, all of that person's learning is is lost uh, on uh, you know on the people who could be learning from them. That's not humility. That's that's just wasted opportunity. Maybe Rabbi Ochanan is is you know saying, okay, I've got this beauty. Um, I, you know, <laughs> I, I won't say flaunt it, but but I'll you know I'll I'll own it. I'll 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 inhabit it, so to speak. That there are two parts of this. One is is the part that is asking of each one of us to bring forth the fullness of ourself, however we are able, using all the gifts and and actually even all of the. You know, this is this is sort of per Lindy West, like, and all of the things that don't necessarily feel like gifts, but are our inheritance, are our bodies, you know, are the things that are not going anywhere. And so we may as well leverage them toward teaching, toward beauty, hmm. you know. Um, but then the other piece of it is is being able to sort of create a world in which, you know, create relationships in which um, people are able to share their inner Hmm. world, their inner brilliance. That that's right. that's what wow, we have beautiful. to You know, it's always a strange question to ask somebody like, what do you feel like are your gifts? What do you feel like are your strengths? What do you feel like are your talents? Hmm. You know, people usually do demure, you know, oh I you know what, yeah. what do you mean? You know, yeah. uh, it's not one of the first questions we're taught to ask people. Right. It's not like, so what do you do? You know, right. hi, what's your name? What do you do? But yeah. it, it does occur to me that um, when we begin to see people in their greatness, you know, through the lens of, of what they believe are their talents, skills, gifts, then we are able to see that, um, and share it. And, um, you know, as a rabbi, one of the most fun and satisfying parts of my job is getting to know people and then deploying them. The community I run is called Mishkan and the whole idea is, you know, everybody brings something. It's straight out of Pirkei Avot, you know, Um, and not being satisfied with the external, you know, so somebody says their name and where they're from, Mm -hmm. you know, great. That is, that is just like the very, very, you know, 
fingernail tip of the iceberg. And my job is to, to get beneath the surface, mm -hmm. but also don't make me work that hard. Tell me more. Who are mm -hmm. you? What do you do? What do you love? Mm -hmm. The more that we share of ourselves with others, the more able we make, uh, make other people to see the beauty inside of us. Hmm. Um, and sometimes that can't be extracted. You just got to bring it. You just got to hmm. bring it. You know, I, um, became a rabbi and was ordained in the conservative movement about a decade and a half into women being ordained by the conservative movement. Mm -hmm. So at the point where I went through school, I didn't personally in school really feel constrained or looked at differently because of being female. However, when I began um, looking at jobs and mm -hmm. visiting communities and actually, um, and, and did some visits, it became clear to me that my being female was a liability. Um, and in the end, I will say like, I sort of created my own space to be a rabbi doing, you know, for me, what was serious Jewish spiritual practice mm -hmm. while holding a guitar, hmm. while being female, while singing, you know, things that might not have totally fit in the particular um, movement, but sometimes you actually do have to create your own space to be you. Hmm. And, and, and in doing that, you give other people permission to be them. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's very, very beautiful. I mean, that's, it's, 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 it's beautiful and it's scary and it's, and it strikes me as supremely difficult and easy for me because I'm, you know, my skin is white and I'm a man. It's, it seems like awesomely important and difficult work to kind of go into that space, um, holding an inner sense of self, knowing that you're being perceived in a certain way and knowing that if you can somehow break through and alter that sense of how you are being perceived, um, it's, it's not only most immediately uh, something that enables you to bring your best self. It's, it's also ultimately something that is a blessing for the person receiving it. And it has ripple effect. I just described my journey, you know, as a female rabbi, I think that's happening in the space of queer Jews. That's happening mm -hmm. in the space of Jews of color, um, you know, really showing not just themselves, but the world, this is what Jews look like. Right. You know, and, and suddenly everybody kind of goes, oh, right. Yeah, of course. God, how could I have been so, yeah. how could I have been so, so racist or so sexist or, you know, and then that we get to do that work, you know? And right. so, you know, from, from your privileged place, right. you know, that you right. admit that you have like right. wonderful, you know, so you get to, you get to use that, that privilege, if you want to, you know, call right. it that to lift up those voices and help, uh, help other people look inside the vessels. Hmm. Beautiful. Lizzie Heidemann, thank you very, very much for being here and for sharing your tour with us. Thank Such an you. honor to be here. Hmm. Such an honor. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Padrash is a project of Kolot, a fantastic organization in Israel, where I'm privileged to direct the Beit Midrash. Before we continue on to Jonathan Bloom, guest of our Hypertech segment, We'll break briefly in order to meet Yossi Saidov, a social entrepreneur in Jerusalem 
and a Kolot alumnus. We chatted so that I could learn about him and how learning Kolot has impacted him. Hello, everybody. My name is Yossi Saidov. I'm 44 years old, I'm married and father to three daughters. And I'm a social entrepreneur in Jerusalem. I'm working a lot about public transportation, workability, sustainability, and things like this. Fantastic. So um, can you share with us a moment during your time at Kolot that stayed with you, that impacted you, uh, or maybe even influenced how you do or what you do? I was learning uh, the Jewish uh, text until then only from, and I heard only one voice, the ultra-orthodox voice. And when I came to Kolot, I started to hear new voices. Everybody in the group had his own voice. And uh, everybody in the group has in his own perspective about the text and the commentary for the text. And uh, I find myself, after every meeting, uh, going home and thinking about all the meaningful things, everything was new for me. For example, Moshe, he tried to bring water, he's talking to the rock, and it doesn't work, so he hit the rock. He doesn't do something so bad. And when you look at the Bible from this perspective, that God is not always the right guy in the story. Like every episode of Padrash, learning at Kolot pulses between the text as discussed in the Beit Midrash and the broken reality that surrounds us, beckoning us to hear voices of wisdom that can point the way to a better world. To learn more about Kolot, visit www. Dot kolot dot net. And now, back to our episode. I would like to welcome to Padrash, Jonathan Bloom. Jonathan is originally from the UK and, like most members of my family, was trained in the area of law and, like most members of my family, decided that that is not the best way to express himself in this world and found his way to photography. Jonathan is married with three grown daughters in the Tel Aviv area. You should go visit his website. JohnBloomPhotographer.com There you go. JohnBloomPhotographer.com It's a, it's a mouthful. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we'll put a link in our episode notes uh, and see his beautiful, beautiful work. Uh, Jonathan, thank you for being with us. Pleasure. Thank you. So here's the question. I, I want to I start by asking for, um, I, as, I, as I told you leading up to our conversation, um, mm-hmm. reading your own description of what you're looking for when you photograph and how it is almost just before the shutter has clicked, um, you know that you've captured something. Right. So, so unpack that for us. What is it that you're looking for and how is it that you know okay. that you've caught something? In the world of portrait photography, um, I think that the essence of a, of a good portrait is to do with intimacy between mm-hmm. two people, more than probably more than aesthetics. And it doesn't happen that often, but occasionally there's a, there's this kind of sensation that for, for a moment, so the person you're photographing, the subject, really kind of um, gives themselves up to mm-hmm. the camera in mm-hmm. a way. There's like a real sense of, of, like I said, intimacy between mm. between the two people. That's one of the main things I think that makes a really uh, powerful mm. portrait uh, photograph. And I think that's the thing I'm reacting to. Obviously, there's there's a whole bunch of other things. You know, there's lighting, there's aesthetics, there's right. a composition. But that, I think that's the, you know, there's suddenly a, a, a sensation that that's, you know, that's the moment when when you've got something. The interesting thing is that it's not necessarily 
you'd expect it to be something that um, it, like people who are more used to being f- photographed have that ability to kind of mm. give them some of it. What I found is what I find photograph also a lot of strangers, uh, street you know portraits that I do in the street of mm-hmm. p- perfect strangers. And quite often you can just someone you know have someone a complete stranger come up to the camera and it's mm. like as if they you know they were completely uh, uh, you know like just giving themselves to the camera huh. just completely opening up. So let me ask you about that. The phrase that you used twice was to give themselves up. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting. I, I you know come from a background of well, you don't know. I come from a background <laughs> of uh, of training in philosophy. So so I'm thinking in terms of what happens at that moment. Right, is that they release in, in a certain sense they give up their subjectivity. In other words, the photographer or the or the camera turns them into an object. I think that's what lots many of us, those of us who are who don't do so well in front of a camera, and I'm, I think I'm in that group, um, have a difficult time because we feel like we're being beheld. We feel like we're being captured. And what I hear you describing in that moment is, in a certain sense, kind of a willingness to let go. And kind of just put themselves out there as a subject, irrespective of however they're being, or or that they're being captured. That ability to kind of really give yourself up to the camera is is, is what makes it interesting. I think for the the person eventually viewing the picture, it's almost a sort of voyeurism. You know, hmm. they're, they're getting right. a, a kind of a, a, a an unearned sort of glance mm. into in, into that person. You know, right. to, to, which you couldn't right. do in deep, in, in, deep in, into that person. Right. Well, you couldn't. You know, it's like the ability to go. You know, if we could go up to people on the street and just go right up to them and, and look them in the face. Right. You know, and sort of really scrutinize them. Right. That would be great. But obviously, right. we'd get arrested. Right. And in a way, the I think the role of the portrait photographer is is you know gives us that ability to kind of you know it sort of allows the viewer that kind of option to be right. a kind of a voyeur for a right. while, uh, you know, and really get up close or, or really scrutinize somebody without, with impunity. Mm. <laughs> You're the photographer behind the camera. Mm-hmm. Is, is that posturing or that giving up of themselves in your experience primarily to the camera or is it also giving themselves up to you? You know, you definitely bring something of yourself to it and right. people react to that in a way uh, as well as what they, you know, they bring to it themselves. Right. So... Tell me something about the relationship between the success of a picture and the aesthetic of it. Um, yeah. That is to say, when you, when you as a photographer consider that you've captured something about that person or the essence mm-hmm. or something is, you know, kind of is, is, is been expressed in your picture, where does the aesthetic uh, component come into that? And. Um. The, the aesthetics are obviously important, uh, but when you know when we say aesthetics, it's it's not yeah, it doesn't necessarily mean uh, just someone who's beautiful right. in, a, in a classic sense. Right. Far from it. I mean, I'm you know quite often I'm not you know that's not what appeals to me in a, a portrait of someone who's just sort of cla- you know considered classic con- conventionally beautiful. Mm-hmm. I think what's really uh, what I'm really looking for is someone let's say that with inter- an interesting face, uh, hmm. and that could be you know. Could be a whole bunch of things. Um, yeah, it jumps to my head uh, in, into my mind. The picture of Stanley Fisher, the the former governor of the Bank of Israel. He was mm-hmm. like this, incre- yeah, this incredibly interesting face. He has mm. that really, really long forehead, a right. very sort of sharp face. I mean, he definitely is not conventionally beautiful, you know, mm-hmm. beautiful person. Mm-hmm. The actor um, Asi Dayan mm-hmm. also was one of the, my favorite portraits. Also, you know, it's far from being a at least when I took his picture, which was, you know, I'm sure he was a very beautiful person when he was a youngster. <laughs> Uh, I think I took his picture about a year before he passed away, and, and you know he, he didn't look 
mm. good in yeah. a conventional sense, but he just you know he's just something so interesting, something so wild mm. about his face, mm. uh, you know. Um, so the aesthetics, obviously, you know, they right. they contribute to it. Uh, a lot of it's got to do with you know the line, you know the the, the lines, the features of somebody's face. You know, a great right. portrait is really a, a mixture of all of those. Mm. You know, it's it's a mixture of the you know the aesthetics, the composition, the lighting, uh, and and finally, you know, and ultimately that, like I said, uh, you know, the the feeling that somebody's really sort of given something of themselves. Mm. Then I assume, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that there's going to be something really important about what's happening in the eyes. Um, it's true. The eye, uh, the eyes are. Kind of one of the most significant features in in a, in, a, in, a, in in a portrait, and obviously, in, you know, regardless of the portrait, in somebody, you know, in in general, in life, mm. you know, when we look at somebody, uh, I think the eyes are, are probably the most significant feature that helps us sort of identify that person. You know, over the years, I've, I've sort of perhaps moved slightly away from that very very close up direct portrait. Um, and I kind of quite often become more interested in seeing that person a little bit more of a distance, giving them a little bit more space. Hmm. And then a lot of other stuff comes into it, like the you know the, the body language, the emotion that they're putting across, hmm. stuff that is quite often if you've just got a very direct you know the eyes in the camera, the eyes in the in the lens kind of portrait, mm-hmm. it's it's hard to get that across. Hmm. Um, That's interesting. So let me let me ask you one uh, one final question, and this is uh, in a certain sense for me. Um, I mean, it's all kind of leading up to this, which is how do you go about, how do you walk in the world? That is to say, when you're not in the studio, when you're not, mm-hmm. um, when you're not setting up a subject, I mean, you don't leave your eyes behind. You don't leave your, your keen eye and your attention to, 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 the, to the wrinkles and to the long forehead and to the body language. You don't leave that stuff behind. And so, so how does it inform, how does, how does I, what I would, assume is a kind of heightened sensitivity that you have to someone's physical presence and appearance how does that inform the way the way you walk in the world the way you interact with people let me just say one other thing which is um obviously uh, i'm i'm saying it um partly just out of interest in terms of you know you and what you have to say, but also in terms of takeaway for me and for us. I, my my starting assumption is that we're all kind of captivated and captured by our eyes and by what we see and by those initial thoughts. So I'm I'm kind of putting out there, assuming that we are beyond what we would all often like to be, um, beholden to the society's sense of aesthetically appealing and and. Um, we kind of ingest that and are informed by that. But I think that, at least I'll say, in terms of what we're exploring this episode, what seems to me really important is the ability to to kind of bring that whole experience to a conscious level and to a choice level and to, and to an awareness. So I'm curious. That's, that's really, I'm kind of like trying to learn from you. It's <laughs> um, a huge question. When I'm just walking, you know, without the camera, mm-hmm. um, you know, I've, I've always, I, I guess as a photographer, you're always looking at the world uh, through a sort of filter of, of you know, you know, looking at compositions, you're mm-hmm. looking at light, you're looking at color. Mm-hmm. It's not a conventional way to look at the world, uh, I don't know, because it's, it's kind of been doing it for the last so many years. But when it, I think when it, you know, what strikes me about people, it's really, it's the aesthetics, it's really not 
you know, if someone, it's kind of very rare that I'll just see someone think, well, that's a beautiful person. That's a, you know, not a beautiful person. Mm-hmm. It's got far more to do with uh, something that's happening, something that's, you know, it might be a, it probably maybe an emotional thing about them. Hmm. Maybe that's somebody that looks, uh, I don't know, sad, lonely, uh, extremely happy, uh, you know, the situation that they're in more than, um, you know, whether they've got mm. uh, great cheekbones or something <laughs> like that. Is there a kind of correlate? Like in, in the real life, um, you know, non-studio encounter that you have with someone where something comes across, mm-hmm. um, is there a kind of correlate to that moment that you have before snapping the yeah, uh, the sure. shutter where you feel like yeah. something essential has transpired and, yeah. and been conveyed? For the last few years, I've been, uh, about once a week, I've been doing a kind of a, a project that appears it's a column that week appears weekly in uh, in Yudiotachonot they've got a a supplement called Maslur which is like a nature and travel supplement of a magazine uh, and it's a column where I basically once a week go to a, a, one of the beaches in Israel from along the Mediterranean coast normally uh, and and literally just kind of wander until I find someone that I really want to take their picture <laughs> and and it also includes a conversation it's like a uh-huh. Which is something for the last few years I've more and more been interested in is, is including text with the photograph. Um, so you know, I'm looking on the beach and just like you know, anyone could be a potential subject. So you know, quite often I've been asked what, you know, what what, what am I looking for? I can only really th- think about it, ret- you know, retroactively, you know. But hmm. I, at, re- at the end of that, it's like someone I think I'd like to spend, an, you know, half an hour with to talk to. Hmm. Um, I think that's really the the best way I can explain it. You know, I look ar- I'm looking around and there's somebody that seems, you know, it looks like they've got an interesting story to hmm. tell. It looks like something's, I don't know, maybe some sort of trauma that they're carrying um, hmm. or something that, you know, I, I'm just really curious to see, you know, it, that strikes my curiosity about them as a person. I've, I've only got the the surface right to, to, to get right. that from i right. mean you know i haven't you know this is before i've actually gone up to someone right. and said you know what you know what's right. your story right so I've, I, you know i'm judging this all by right. the surface but that's still a lot of you know again you can photography is all or i think in life in general when we're looking at people you know we're trying to gauge what's going on inside by what's happening on the surface right i think some you know perhaps some of us are better at, at doing that mm. than others maybe photographers of you know mm. that I, I presume a portrait photographer should be good uh, maybe at, at, at having an instinct for mm. you know who's going to be interesting mm. to approach and perhaps and photograph and talk to humility aside do you how's your batting average as we say in, in other words do you do you do pretty well in terms is there a correlation between who you think is going to be interesting and, and normally yeah yeah so that's 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 yeah. particularly interesting to me because because at one level you're looking for quote-unquote, an interesting aesthetic. But then what you also just told me is that what, yeah. real, what you really want is someone who you're going to have an interesting 30 minutes with. Yeah, that's wow. fine. <laughs> Beautiful. Jonathan Bloom, thank you very, very thank much you. for your time. It's a pleasure. Thanks. Do you think I'm fat? That's what that six-year-old girl asked Rabbi Lizzie Heidemann as she looked at her in the mirror right smack in the middle of Shabbat morning services at Ikar in Los Angeles. That girl, of course, isn't to blame for intuitively knowing what Elna Baker came to understand when seating people for the Letterman show or looking for a spouse. We are that superficial. Literally, we see the surface. And how could we not? 
So, what are we to do about it? We could relocate from L.A. to Chicago, but of course, as Rabbi Lizzie knew well, the Midwest doesn't solve matters. We can avoid thinking about the colors of the napkins at our wedding, as Rabbi Joel suggests to his congregants, but we're still going to have napkins, and there's still going to be some color. The answer, I think, lies somewhere in the words of Rabbi Huda Nasi, Rebbe as he's known. He didn't say, don't look at all. He said, don't look at the vessel, but rather at what's inside. Now, of course, we can't see what's inside. So it must be that Rebbe is asking us to do something else, to add a kind of depth to our field of vision. We won't suddenly have X-ray vision, but as Jonathan Bloom does, we can look for interesting, for something that's happening for the people with whom we'd want to engage in conversation for 30 minutes. That's the kind of vision we need to cultivate. And from the other direction, when we are the ones beheld, and that's pretty much all the time, whether we live in a big glittery city or a small rural village, we can give ourselves over to the camera, as Jonathan Bloom says his best subjects do, We can be radiant and luminous so that, like Rabbi Yochanan, our inner Torah effuses, flowing through every available orifice. We can bind our subjectivity and our physicality into an integrated whole that we offer to the world around us. Padrash is a project of Kolot. I'm Leon Wienerdow, creator and host. My sincere thanks go to this episode's guests, Rabbi Lizzie Heideman and Jonathan Bloom, to our producer, Noam Zuckerman, to David Goodman and Aaron Harris for their masterful sound editing, to my chevruta, Rabbi Joel Levy, for the learning, the wisdom, and the helpful suggestions at our shared Shabbat dinner table about what color kitchen counter we should get in order to bring out the striations on our cabinets. And to Michael Gerl-Samir for the original music. Please visit our website at www.padrash.org where you'll find links to the original episode of This American Life and to Joel's and my extended chavruta, along with the texts that we reference. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tell your friends, tweet, like our page on Facebook, and please give us a five-star rating. It really helps. At least that's what they say. We'll be back next week with episode three, external success, internal happiness. Thanks for joining us. <laughs>